I'm going to talk about the Battle of Jericho this morning. I do want to say at the beginning that I read a book called The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. It's going to be the springboard for what I'm going to talk about this morning. And I don't recommend all of this book. We don't recommend books. But he had some really good things to say. So when we talk about the Battle of Jericho, you know, the first thing I think about is cartoons. You know, probably when we were little kids, we always had, well, had cartoons of the Battle of Jericho and these figures, you know, were marching around and we have that, that picture in our head. And, you know, we give a lot of credit to Joshua for fighting the Battle of Jericho. You know, we, we, and, you know, the song probably comes to our mind, you know, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. You know, it's a fun song, it's a fun song. I want to get into the heads of the people who marched around with him. We have, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities. Because when I look around here, I see a lot of people. That are facing their Jerichos. That's not in my notes, so I'm not going to do this. Um, you know, there really wasn't a battle for Jericho. As long as a battle, there was nobody swinging their swords. There was nobody um, shooting arrows. They didn't have battering rams. It's the story of people like us obeying God's first voice and believing him. You know, I thought about, you know, if the Battle of Jericho would have happened today, there'd be, the newscasters would all be out there. And they'd be asking questions, and they would probably ask questions like, what was going through your mind when you were all marching around the city? Did it ever cross your mind that maybe this wasn't going to happen? What was the enemy shouting at you from the tops of the, the walls? What were they shouting at you when you went around day by day? Or surely there were unbelievers standing around watching you crazy people do this. How did you handle their jeers and questions? Did anybody give up on the sixth day and say, this isn't going to work? Did anybody give up on the seventh day, the seventh trip around, and say, this isn't going to work? What were the conversations like in the tents at night? After you'd marched around, did you sit around? What did you talk about? You know, your ancestors 40 years ago said you couldn't take this land. Why did you believe Joshua now and they didn't believe Moses then? Or they could have said, did you know how thick these walls were? Did you know how, did you know how thick the walls were before you started marching around? I dare say we have a good idea what they thought because um, many, like if all of, if not all of us, have faced our own Jerichos, our own thick walled cities. And Jericho is spelled in many different ways for each of us. If your child or parent is far from the Lord, it's spelled S-A-L-B-A-T-I-O-N. If it's spelled, if you have a need, it's spelled P-R-O-V-I-S-I-O-N. 
And if you're feeling aimless, it's spelled D-I-R-E-C-T-I-O-N. And as John mentioned in his sermon on James, if you're in any trial, it's spelled W-I-S-D-O-M. And if you're battling fear, it's spelled P-E-A-C-E. And it could be somebody else's name. That could be your Jericho. We are familiar here of our walled cities that seem immovable. Yet we march around them. We pray around them. We do what we believe God is telling us to do. Believing God for the walls to come down. So to understand Jericho, I want to go back to the beginning. We got to go back to the beginning in Genesis 12. Let's start in Genesis 12. And this is, um, this is kind of where God has called Abraham out. And he's going to give them the land. Jericho is in that land that he is going to give Abraham. And I'm going to start at verse 1, uh, 1 through 8. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of the country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haram. Leonard, you can, you can lead us. Are you about that age? Close. And Abraham took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haram, Haran, and they went forth to go to the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abraham passed through the land to the place of, of Sitcom, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was there in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called up unto the name of the Lord. And then the rest of that chapter, they have a famine and he ends up going to Egypt. I want to pick it up again in chapter 13, verse 1. And this is after they went back. And Abraham went up out of Egypt he and his wife and all he had and lot with him into the south. And Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel. So he's back to where he, he left. He goes back to that same place unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai. Unto the place of the altar which he had made in the first and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Then he and Lot have this little issue, and, and you know, Lot chose this. Abraham told, chose the other, and I'm going to pick it up again in verse 14. 
And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot had separated from him, Lift up now thy eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which thou seest. Remember that. From all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number, so that so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent, and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. He says, and look from the place where you are. The area east of Bethel, which have been the bluffs over the Jordan Valley, Jericho was 800 feet below sea level in that valley. So where Abraham was 500 years before this battle ever took place, he was probably within seven miles of Jericho. And 500 years before he promised the land to his descendants. So like I said, they're only about seven miles, so he probably would have saw it. So God promised it to Abraham and his seed. He was fulfilling it 500 years later. Aren't we glad God does not forget a promise? Amen. His promises don't have expiration dates, and they don't have a shelf life. So let's jump ahead to Joshua 6. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Now, Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see. That is interesting to me. I have given unto thine hand Jericho and the king himself and the mighty men of valor. I have given into thy hand Jericho. That word see, like I said, it's interesting to me. It's the same thing that he told Abraham 500 years, every place where you can see. So Jericho is looking at Jericho, or uh, Joshua is looking at Jericho, and what does he see? He sees a fortress with walls 30 feet tall, and God says, See, I have given you Jericho. That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's in one sentence. It's one word. I have given it to you. It's not unlike God who has told us that he's given us some things we are believing for. And all we see at this point is the fortress. All we see is the wall, are the walls. The problem. The circumstance. All he could see was a city with walls six feet thick, 30 feet tall, and God says, see, I've given you Jericho. Just to get off track, just a sidestep, building a wall has been going on for hundreds of years, so our president has nothing new to do, nothing new to say. They've been building walls for centuries. That was an aside. 
So I did some study on the walls, on the walls of Jericho and their archaeological digs. And they said that, that there were two walls according to these digs. The inner wall was 12 feet thick from here to the end and 30 feet tall. And that was the inner wall. The outer wall was six foot thick, thick and 30 feet tall. And these walls were built 15 feet apart, and they built their houses on top of these walls, which would give it stability. Engineers, you would know that, right? That would give it stability. You know, because it says uh, Rahab lived on, her house was on the wall. Well, it wasn't teetering on a wall. You know, it made more sense when they, when they explained it like this. It was supporting the walls. You know, it says she let him down, she let the two spies down the wall, so she, her house was probably up on that wall. And they said when it came down that the, the bricks are still laying there, they all fell out. So when the outside wall fell out, these houses caused the inside wall to come with them. That's how the bricks, how, that's how the bricks are still laying there. And Joshua and the people are looking at this fortress, and God is saying, See, I have given thee the city. And we know that Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 that all these things happened to them for our examples. They are written for our admonition and instruction. So the story of Jericho was not written because God needed to fill pages of the Old Testament. They were given for our instruction. It is an example of obedience and believing in a promise given by God. So can it be said that that's what God was asking them to see? I have given it to you by promise. You know, and as I said, I can look across the room today and I see people who I know have Jerichos in their lives. And they have to see the same circumstances and look at the same, the same walls. You know, they look immovable, impenetrable, and impossible. So God has given Joshua some instructions on how to take the city, and we know the story. It's in chapter 6. I'm going to just read 3 through 7. And ye shall compass the city... All ye men of war and go about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when they hear, when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up, every man straight before him. And Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant, take seven priests, bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns 
passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant that, that followed them. My first point is that faith looks foolish to the unbeliever. You know, faith has to have a willingness to look foolish, but in God's world, faith precedes miracles. You know, the world does everything in its power to keep from looking foolish at all cost. And I was thinking of this afterwards, and I thought, mm, some of the images I see around, not, that's not everybody. <laughs> some people are loved to look foolish. But um, most people try to keep from looking foolish to those around them. It's the power behind peer pressure. Well, it'll make people do crazy things not to look foolish. People avoid looking foolish to the world at all cost. People will do the opposite of what they know and profess in order not to look foolish to those around them. And I was thinking of that word foolish. There's a lot of things in the kingdom that look foolish to the natural man that God said he uses. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness or absurdity, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Jesus hanging on the cross was foolishness to those around them. He looked like a failure and everything he had said in the disciples' eyes, died with him. You know, he looked like a failure. And I was thinking, he told them he would raise this body up in three days. But it records nobody waiting at the tomb at the end of three days with a buffet going to celebrate. Nobody. Nobody believed him. But in the spiritual realm, it was the most powerful tool in our redemption and salvation. Sometimes we look foolish to the world, believing for something. But to God, it's the only way we receive what he's promised. Do we expect the world to come and pat us on the back and say, um, you know, for believing in something we can't see? Do they encourage us? They go, this is a great idea. It ain't going to happen. Another thing that, that he says is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness or the absurdity of preaching to save them that believe. We're talking about the difference between the natural and and the supernatural here. That's what God was talking about to Joshua. Between the natural, see, I have given you this. Joshua had to believe. You told me. This is what you told me. You told me they, I, you told me. Believing God often looks like an exercise in foolishness, but that's faith. 
Noah looked foolish building a boat in the middle of the desert. These people looked foolish marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. A shepherd boy named David looked foolish running towards the giant with a slingshot. Peter looked foolish stepping out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus looked foolish hanging on the cross with a crown of thorns. But Noah was saved from the flood. The walls of Jericho did fall. David did defeat the giant. Peter did walk on the water. And Jesus was crowned King of Kings. If the things that happened in the Old Testament were our examples, we've got a lot of miracles coming our way. The miracles in the Old Testament are just as much of an example to us as the trials were. You know, it says, what happened in the Old Testament is for your instruction. The end of those trials were the miracles. That is just as much as, our, as for our instruction. We are in a great company with the saints of the Old Testament. When you think of it, most of, what's hap what, most of what happened in the Old Testament was impossible situations. The examples that are given for our learning were not small potatoes. They weren't what I call hangnail testimonies. They were over and over and over. Noah and the ark. Abraham, Abraham having children at 100. Joseph becoming ruler in Egypt. The burning bush, Moses and the deliverance of the Israelites at the Red Sea, the incredible exodus and all the miracles that happened in the wilderness, you know, God sustaining them in the wilderness. This author has one example called, and I love this, cloudy with a chance of quail. And he puts some numbers together regarding this incredible miracle. It's in Numbers 11.31. And I'm going to, I'm going to um, read just a little bit of it, but I'm going to start in, okay, in 18. And we know the story. You know, they're all complaining. We were doing fine in Egypt, you know, they said. We want meat. They were murmuring and complaining. Um, Numbers 11, verse 18. And say thou unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and you will eat. You shall not eat one day, or two days, or five days. This sounds like a little bit of disgust to me. You shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days. But even a whole month, and it, till it comes out your nose. I don't remember that in there. The only thing I can figure out, they're going to eat so much that they're going to throw up. That's the only thing that I can figure out. It's going to come out your nostrils. And it will be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, 
and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? And Moses said, and, and Moses said, The people among who I am are six hundred thousand footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. And he's going, Are we supposed to kill all of our flocks? You know, he's wondering, How are you going to do this? And the herds be slain for them to satisfy them? Or shall we eat all the fish of the sea be gathered together for, to them to, to suffice them? And the Lord said unto Moses, and we know, that we know this verse, is the Lord's hand waxed short. Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. So this author puts some numbers to this. Okay, I want to ask you. Oh, wait a minute. And I'm going to read the end of it, and then I'm going to go back and go over something. In verse 31, And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. Does anybody have an italics down there at the end of that verse? what a day's journey is? What does your Bible say? Nothing? I'm the only one with the King James Version. It says a day's journey is 20 miles. So he said that the quail fail a day's journey in every direction. So we've got from here to the Waterson, 264. We've got from here to the middle of Frankfurt. We've got from here to Campbellsburg. And we've got from here to Bloomfield. And it says they fell three feet high. And I had to, and I had to go over the geometry here, or whatever it's called. That's a 40-mile circus, and if you square the radius and take that times pi, or 3.14, you have 1,256 square miles of quail three feet deep. I couldn't believe it, so I took a compass and put it on graph paper and made my 20 things, counted the squares. It's 1,256 square miles miles of quail three feet deep. Johnny, have you ever had a quail hunt that good? <laughs> Washington, D.C. is 68 square miles. We'll say it again. 1,000. This is after God said, is my arm short? Can I not do this? So they gathered, they, they gathered quail for 36 hours and had a quail feast. He that gathered, it says, he that gathered least gathered 10 homers. A homer, I read up, is a donkey load or about six and a quarter bushels. I can't, I can't even put a number to the number of quail that is. I don't know. He said he would, I mean, there were three million people. 
So he did what he had to do. I mean, he made it and he fed them for a month with quail. And we sing the song, nothing is too difficult for thee, ah, clap, 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 nothing is too difficult. But when you're believing, when you're facing your Jericho, when you're looking at that wall, we kind of slide back into logic and forget who promised. Remember their complaint. Can God supply? And I think we put human restrictions on God and binding to human terms and abilities Instead of living by faith, we tend to slide back by living by logic. I, I, I think sometimes my biggest problem may be our, my small view of God. With God, there is, no, there is no big thing or small thing. There is no easy or difficult. There is no possible or impossible. There is no degree of difficulty with God. Some things are not harder for God to do. He doesn't sweat because this one is going to really be hard. This is going to be a hard one. You know, I think of a weightlifter. You know, if you lift weights or what, 20 pounds is easy to lift. But when I get to 200 pounds, I'm inflating that just a little bit. It's, you know, you... Take a few deep breaths and get your stance right, and you, I can do this. And that's the way we think of God when it comes to the, we're the ones that say the hard things. God has never said, he's never sung, is there anything too difficult for me? When the Israelites circled Jericho, it's like us circling our Jerichos in prayer. Does anyone think that if they stopped circling, the walls would have fallen down anyway? The author says he believes in short prayers before meals because he likes to eat his food hot. <laughs> but there are situations where you need to grab onto the horns of the altar and refuse to let them go until the answer is manifested. And I'm not talking about asking again and again. I'm talking about intercession. Praying in the spirit, battling the forces of darkness that are resisting God's people. Why did it take seven times around the city? Why not just three? We don't know. We aren't given the reason. Why does it take time? Why does it take the time for our Jerichos to fall flat? We don't know. That's a God secret. You know, and I think we've all experienced Sometimes prayer is like popping popcorn in the microwave. Throw it in there, turn the thing on for, I don't know, a minute, step back, and you got it. But then there's also examples of um, Jesus saying it's like a seed. You put it in the ground, and you don't see, you don't see a harvest until down the road. He uses a, there's a lot of agricultural um, examples, you know, in the new, but that's the way, that's, you know, they were farmers. They were tillers of the ground and, and um, they had animals. It, it just, it took time and they could understand it took time for the fruit to come. 
I do know that it is always too soon, too soon to stop praying because you never know when the wall will fall. We are always one prayer from a miracle. Every time they went around the city, God was showing them that they were powerless to take the city. But through their obedience, he was showing them that he would do the impossible. This was their initiation battle into taking the rest of the uh, land that God had promised Abraham. You know, um, it was their first test as a group after the 40 years in the wilderness. And it doesn't record 80% of them saying, we can't do this, like it did 40 years earlier when the 10 spies went in. Something happened in that 40 years in their hearts so that they would go around the city without murmuring and bringing evil reports about not being able to receive the promise of the land. It's interesting, when God was giving instructions to uh, Joshua, it says in verse 10, it says, do not make a sound with your voice. And I'm wondering if that wasn't because they would have talked each other out of it. I can hear it now. I'll tell you one thing. If it doesn't happen by the fifth time, I'm quitting. The only way for the walls to come down was to keep circling. Believing it was going to happen as God said it would was all they had. God never gave them a plan B. They had a promise that God would give them the land. It was the problem. It was the promise God gave their father Abraham around 500 years early, not unlike the promises given to us. They couldn't fall a 30-foot wall by themselves any more than we can conquer our Jerichos. They could not do it on their, in their own strength. But we can circle it in prayer. We can obey. Another thing I want to look at uh, was this idea of shouting. So my second point is faith will shout in praise. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that if we don't shout, we're not going to get the manifestation, but I think it will be, it, it'll be vocal. Yeah, it may be in your prayer closet. It may be here. It may be in the car. But I think it will be, something will come out your mouth. Um, the Israelites shouted in faith that the walls would fall down. They shouted before. They shouted before they saw the walls come down. The word shout or shouted, shouted or shouting is used 65 times in the Bible. And that word shout means to split the ears, make a joyful noise, or sound an alarm. So I do, th I do th and there's, there's other instances where God used, you know, you shout. There's something to verbalizing your faith. And there's other instances of God requiring them to do something that demonstrated their faith. And I want to uh, look at one more um, example. It's in Second Chronicles 20. And we know this, the story of Jehoshaphat. 
and there are many similarities between them and the victory at Jericho. And I'm going to read 1 through 22, but I'm going to comment as we, as we go through it. So it's in 2 Chron- Chronicles 20, and I may pass over to some of the cities because I'll get bogged down. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, on this side Syria, and behold, they be at um, Hazazontarma, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. Verse 3 and 4 there to me sounds like a prayer meeting. But I want to concentrate on that word. Just stop at verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared. Feared is usually a bedfellow of our trials. As most of you know, if we can control the thought realm in a trial and keep fear out, that's half the battle. Fear always brings the worst case scenario, doesn't it? Fear never says, this will be over a little bit and everything will be okay. Fear never says that. Before Joshua chapter 3 came Joshua chapter 1, And I'm going to read the times that God told Joshua, don't be afraid. Be strong and of good courage. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Verse 7, only be thou strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. Verse 18, only be strong and of a good courage. We need to be encouraged to not fear because it is a very strong voice in our ears. Joshua needed to be encouraged. And I don't think you need to be discouraged if you have to battle it. Everybody does. The apostles did. Don't think something strange has happened if you have to battle fear in your trials. You're not alone. Jesus knew we would be fearful at times. Peter feared and started to sink But Jesus was right there and helped him out. And another thing is this thing of discouragement. I think when we think of Peter walking on the water, we think of what Peter did and we forget what Jesus did. The most important part there is he didn't let him sink. Jesus was right there and helped him. Do we do that to each other or do we let him sink? Can I say, if the devil throws fear at you, it's because he knows you have faith. That's how he's going to try to defeat you. We need to recognize it and to address it when it's little, like um, Brother Lawson said when he was teaching. We need to overcome it when it's little, before it gets too big. In Psalm 64, 1, I like this verse. Hear my voice, O God. 
in my prayer, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. We've all been taught really good about fear, and sometimes we need a little reminder. I had to put it in practice this week. I need to hear this as much as anybody, and it's so, it's so easy to see when you're not in a trial, or it's not you, it's too easy for it to get when the head of the spear is thrown at your name, is thrown at you, and your name is on it. That's when, you, that's when we need to remember that verse, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. And we all know 1 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Okay, let's go on. And in verse 10, and now behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade. <laughs> and I went back and looked at it, and the Lord did tell Moses, let them go. And this is where they, they had to barter with them, like, let us pass, or we'll pay for the water that our livestock drink. There was a reason why, I mean, this is kind of like what John was talking about in the Garden of Eden, you know, Adam said, well, it was that woman that you gave me. That's why I sinned. And now the Israelites are kind of saying, well, these people are, are coming against us. You wouldn't let us destroy them when we came through the first time. So there was a little bit of, little bit of a blame game going on there, insinuating that if they would have destroyed the Ammonites and the Moabites, they wouldn't be in this fix. But I looked into it, and if you read it, God promised that land to Esau and the descendants of Lot. Originally, that's why he did not want them to destroy those people. Then in verse 12, O our God, wilt thou not judge us? Judge us, For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And that's the verse we all know. Neither know we what to do. Have you ever been there? I don't know what to do. I'm sure Joshua, when he looked at the walls of Jericho, he must have thought the same thing went through his mind. And I'm sure there's people here today that would say the same thing. I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the key. The first, the first verse or the first sentence says, I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the key, keeping our eyes on you. They weren't going to defeat their enemy any more than Joshua's going to knock down the walls of Jericho any more than we can knock down our walls. In verse 15, it's another portion of scripture we all know. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And we all know that, we all know that verse. The battle is not yours, but God's. And then tomorrow says, ye, tomorrow, go ye down against them. So he's given them the promise, but they had to do something. You know, he gave them the promise 
the battle is mine, I'll take care of it, but you've got to go. You've got to go down against them. And so they were obedient, I'm sure in their mindset, but the Lord's, but Lord, you said it's your battle. Then in verse 17, you shall not need to, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. It's just like in the verse um, before, it says, the battle is the Lord's. God was requiring something of them. Just like marching around Jericho didn't make the walls fall down. All that marching didn't cause an earthquake. God spoke the word, and it was done. The walls of our Jerichos are in God's hands, but he usually asks us to do something, to ask, act our faith, and sometimes it's circling our Jerichos with prayer. That's, how, that's all we know what to do. And then in verse 22, they begin to sing and to praise. And here we have them raising their voices before they saw the enemy defeated again, like the shout before the walls fell down. Once again, logic is screaming no, and faith is whispering yes. All of us love miracles. We just don't like being in the situation that necessitates one. I'm going to say it again. All of us love miracles. We just don't like being in the situation that necessitates one. But our examples of the Old Testament people, they all were in uncomfortable situations. You know, Abraham, Moses, Hannah at the wall, Joseph, Joshua, David, Paul, Peter, Actually, we are really in great company with our Jerichos. We're just in the middle of the story. We've got the promise. We're circling. And the end is coming. How else can we, how else can we view them if there are examples? I don't know how else, how else to read it. I'm going to read, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to end with one more quote from the book. God is great not just because nothing is too big for him. God is great because there is nothing too small for him either. We need to encourage each other, encourage each other to pray, pray for each other. And let's believe that these God gave us these examples we're going to see this, the end of our Jerichos, just like Joshua and all the people saw the end of their miracles. You need to believe that. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful again. We're reminded again this morning of your eternal word, what you've had people pen on paper. That was your heart. That was your words. That was your thoughts. And you knew, you knew, Lord, when those things were being written, 
that us in our day would need them for examples and that they would be our examples. And you are faithful to them, Lord, and you'll be faithful to us. And I pray as we go this week, Lord, we'll be reminded, we'll be encouraged, and we'll be uh, lifting each other up in prayer, thanking you for the promises, Lord, and thanking you for the victory. And we'll give you all the praise for it today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.